outside this door. Well, the scripture reading was from Daniel 12, and in a numerological oddity, we are now in Revelation 12. So if you want to open up in your pew Bible to Revelation chapter 12, page 1223 is where we are. Now, we started Revelation 12 last Sunday morning, and I think you'll see that a lot of the themes that Pastor Jeremy began to develop last Sunday, you're going to see kind of continued and deepened this morning as we march our way through this text. So Revelation 12, starting down in verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had been given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and to sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have read your word and we pray now that you would bless the reading of your word and that you would speak to us this morning. Father, we pray that it would not be a time of information gathering or of idle curiosity and speculation, but it would be a time of transformation that it would be a time in which you conform us more to the men and women you want us to be, that we would reflect the image, likeness, and glory of Christ more brightly to a world desperately in need of it. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, if I was to try to describe the the movement and the power and the, the shape and the form of these verses in a single sentence, I might say that, We are in the middle of an epic war with a defeated but dangerous foe. And I wonder if we are living that way. We are in the middle of a war, an epic war with a dangerous but defeated foe, and I wonder if we are living that way. It's actually not together an altogether uncommon concept for our culture at this moment, I think. If we look at the kind of movies and the sitcoms that Hollywood is producing over the last 10 years, I think we see a ample sampling of movies and themes that depict kind of some global or universal or cosmic conflict that humanity is caught up in. Maybe some of them unwittingly, 
Some of them fighting a battle or a struggle, some of them not. But this kind of clash between good versus evil with humanity stuck in the middle. So whether we're looking at the movie Matrix or whether we're talking about rebirth of the the sitcom V, which after about 25 years is back with us with better special effects, as I have already come to find out, or perhaps even the Twilight series, we are surrounded by a bunch of movies and themes and ideas that depict an epic struggle that human beings are a part of. Again, whether or not they, they realize it. In his epic work, The Art of War, which is studied in military academies, top-notch business schools, heck, it even made an appearance in the, the movie Wall Street, the Chinese tactician Sun Tzu wrote the following. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know the enemy but do not know yourself, for every victory you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Well, we saw last week in verses 1 through 9 that the war has been won already. That Christ Jesus made a spectacle of the forces of darkness on the cross, triumphing over them in the crucifixion and the resurrection. The war has been won. The powers of darkness have been defeated. Their judgment is at hand. Things are set. And yet, as some would say, we we are now living somewhere between D-Day and V-E Day. Even though the end is decided and fixed, there are still conflagrations There are still battles. There are still casualties. And I find myself wondering, could we, brothers and sisters in Christ, say this morning that we know the enemy? That we know his his power? That we know his objective? That we know the means by which he is going to try to accomplish that objective? Could we say that we know that according to the word of God and not according to the latest Lionsgate or DreamWorks film? Could we say that we know ourselves, our strengths, our weaknesses, the, the, the weapons we have at our disposal, the path to victory? Again, not according to our own natural inclinations, which are liable to make us think either too well of ourselves or not give ourselves enough credit, but according to the Word of God. Do we know the enemy? Do we know ourselves? Because we are in the middle of an epic war with a defeated but dangerous foe, and we need to start living that way. So we're just going to focus on three aspects of this conflict this morning. We could, we could talk much more about these seven verses, but we're going to narrow it down. We're going to talk about what we need to know as followers of Christ. We need to know the field of battle. We need to know the enemy. And we need, it seems to me, to know ourselves. Well, the field of battle, we see here in this text two kind of symbolic and Descriptions, the the desert or the wilderness, depending on your translation, and this period of time, three and a half years. And the blending of these two images and and, and the ways in which they are very similar gives an awful lot of life and breath and background to the passage. So it's worth stepping back and it's worth asking ourselves, what would those two images mean to a first century follower of Christ? When they heard this concept of desert or wilderness, when they hear this concept of three and a half years, what would a first century follower of Christ think? Well, the reference to a time, times, and half a time, or three and a half years, is almost assuredly a reference to Daniel chapter 7, the only other place in Scripture where we see this period of time appear 
specifically like that. It's a period of time where the people of God are handed over to a little horn where they suffer persecution for three and a half years. It's a period of time that by the first century A.D. had attained something of a mythic significance in Israel. When you'd say three and a half years, people were aware of it the way if I say four score and seven years ago, you've probably already got a certain president in your mind giving a certain address centered around a certain civil war in our country. Three and a half years. It was burned into their mind because their relatives not too long back in the second century B.C. had lived through a very difficult three and a half year period of time. Specifically 167 to 164 AD, we see the nation of Israel undergo some of the most immense persecution they've undergone in their history as a people. A um, military descendant, again, not biological, military, of Alexander the Great, a man by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, begins to rule over you know, Judea, Jerusalem, the entire Palestinian world. And he's got a really ambitious objective. He wants to destroy Jewish life, religion, and culture. It's a pretty significant item on the to-do list, right? He wants to destroy it and displace it, and in its place, put an aggressive program of Greek religion, philosophy, culture, and language. And instead of just kind of waiting for things to take their course as his government slowly comes into power, he set things off right away on the mark and says, it is now a capital offense to circumcise your son. Capital offense. He makes it illegal, also punishable by death, to read the Bible. He begins rounding up anyone who's a priest and executing them and saying anyone who becomes a priest will also be executed. He marches into the temple, slaughters a pig on the altar in the temple. So aggressive is his hostility towards the people of God as we see. And it may not be surprising that people didn't like this very much. I mean, it wasn't a big deal if you were like, hey, I don't really care about God and I don't care about the Old Testament and I don't care about obeying Him. Hey, Greek is for me. Then it wasn't really a big deal. But if you were looking to obey the living God and maintain that religion, that culture, you had a problem. And so, very quickly, a rebellion develops led by a man by the name of Judah the Hammer. Sounds like, like a fullback, doesn't he? I mean, you, can't you just see her, Bob Costas? And Judah the Hammer is moving up the middle. You know, he leads this revolt, initiates the Hismonian dynasty, and after this immense period of conflict, the land has peace and rest for a period of time until the Romans end up appearing. And so this three and a half years was felt powerfully by everyone that lived through it and felt powerfully generations later, such that New Testament scholar D.A. Carson can write... Because the three-and-a-half-year period was such a burning memory in the minds of the Jews from that point forward. And they understood that three-and-a-half-year period to be a fulfillment of Daniel 7. They came to think of three-and-a-half years as symbolic of a time of severe testing, opposition, and tribulation before God gave his people rest again. And so you see what he's saying. And there's a sense in which I think what this passage is then saying is that 
as we saw, and I'm not going to talk about Daniel 12, but maybe you even got that gist from the reading. There's a sense in which we are living in this three and a half year period even now. There's a sense in which I think this three and a half year period is both symbolic and both literal. I think John is trying to, to give us a sense of what the Christian experience is like by reminding us that the Christian experience is not a vacation. It is not paradise on earth. It is life in the midst of a war of an epic struggle. Are you aware that according to any reliable statistic, the last 150 years have seen more conversions to Christ around the world than the previous 1,800 years combined? Think about that. Christians, we're really great, especially here in America, to say, things are getting bad, things are getting awful, life and culture is going downhill. There have been more conversions in the last 150 years than the last 1,800 years combined. But there's a flip side to that coin. The last 150 years has also seen more people explicitly killed because they claimed the name of Christ than the previous 1,800 years combined. We are living in a moment of great advancement of the gospel and also great suffering and persecution for the gospel. And so whether we're talking about a two street preachers in Florida who were shot for evangelizing, as happened in the last two weeks, or we're talking about churches in Jos, Nigeria, being burned down with Christians in them, it's not a, an altogether unrealistic idea to conceive that we are living in the middle of a significant moment full of suffering, persecution, and hardship prior to a period of rest at the hand of God. However, it needs to be said that I am very open to the idea of this, this also having a very literal idea. There are many Christians today that believe that eventually we're going to end up, end up ushering into a literal three and a half year period of even further suffering and I find myself somewhat open to that. John says in 1 John 2, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. He's trying to say, yeah, I can look forward and I can see eventually there's going to be a singular figure opposed to God who makes war on God's people. But you know what? They're already here. Yeah, there's going to be one awful guy, but there's already a lot of awful guys around now and in the future. And so I think it's possible to see a a symbolic and yet a literal fulfillment in this period of time. Then we go to this idea of the concept of the wilderness. Where does God take the woman? To the wilderness or or the desert, if if you have the NIV, I believe. And how does he get her there? Did you notice that? He, He gives her the wings of an eagle. And what does he save her from? A flood spewed forth by the mouth of the dragon. Do you see any Exodus imagery present there? Any images very similar to what we see in the book of Exodus, where in chapter 19, verse 4, God says, I took you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. We could spend a whole sermon just talking about that imagery as we see it here. And that desert or that wilderness experience comes up again and again in the Old Testament prophetic literature to symbolize a time of testing, a time of trial, a time of suffering and judgment, yet also a time that God looks back fondly on as a time of intimacy where he wooed his people and revealed himself to them in mighty ways. It it, it was, after all, in the time of the desert, of the wilderness wanderings of Israel, where they committed apostasy. 
where they rebelled against their leaders that God had given them, where they formed a golden calf, and the scriptures tell us they got up and committed fornication in an act of pagan revelry. But it was also the period of time when God gave them manna from heaven six days a week. The time in the history of Israel where God sent a quail in to provide for their needs. The time when God revealed himself on Mount Sinai and the earth shook. The time when God led them clearly by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. The time when God caused water to come forth from a rock. The time when God gave them the law in the form of the Ten Commandments. The wilderness experience for Israel was a time of suffering and hardship and difficulty, but it was also a time when God was so very near and so very much delivered and cared for His people. And so you might be asking, okay, Chris, you've spent 15 minutes belaboring this point. Why? There surely is much else we could spend time thinking about. And I do it for a particular reason, because I have this kind of peculiar habit, which, which probably actually isn't altogether that peculiar, that my expectation for a situation largely determines my action and reaction regarding a situation. So, you know, case in point, I wake up in the morning and I think, you know what, the sun is shining, it's a beautiful day, I look at my planner and I think, man, I don't have a lot going today, there's probably three blocks of time I could sneak out for a 30-minute run between now and 9 p.m., if I, if I set my day with that expectation, and honestly, this is just me being goofy, the day ends and I, that didn't happen because the phone kept ringing, appointments went longer, the sermon took twice as long as it should have taken to work on. That never happens. I'm kind of frustrated. If that happens five days in a row, I'm angry and thinking I need to make an appointment with my cardiologist. Okay? Whereas if I start the morning and I look at my planner and I think, Man, I am swamped all day. It is just going to be a crazy day, and I'm not going to have time to breathe between now and when my head hits the pillow. Well, then if I don't go running that day, I'm a little sad, and I'm feeling a little lethargic, but I'm not surprised, and I'm not too disappointed. Even if that goes a whole week, I start thinking i got to allot my time better. You know, just kind of very similar to holiday parties. Most of us, if you're like me, and I think many are, we pray our way through holiday parties, Right? We've got the cousin who always has too much to drink and tells us what they really think about us, which is always great. We've got the aunt's favorite meal that she always burns and overcooks, but we've got to eat to be polite. We've got the obligation. Some of us have the the Christmas celebrations that don't even talk about Christ. And and for many of us, if we approach one of these holiday experiences and we said, today is going to be an encouraging day, and, and my life is going to be transformed. And maybe we'll all you know, sit in a circle and sing Kumbaya. If that's our expectation, we are going to probably be remarkably disappointed. Whereas from my conversations, I think many of us, if we want to really succeed, we've got to start the day by saying, God, give me strength to just make it through the day and not say anything I have to apologize for. Our expectation determines our action and reaction. And so John here, I think, is very much using these two images to conjure to mind a certain kind of experience, what it's like to go through a war, so that we as followers of Christ can have our expectations rightly set. So that we can have our day and our expectations for the day rightly ordered. 
In many ways, I think John is trying to be a good um, slogan writer, you might say. I mean, many of us, some of us have lived through World War II. Other of us have seen a lot of the images of the media campaign in World War II and know the effect that it had. We can think of images of Uncle Sam with his white beard waving, arm outstretched, saying, I want you. We can, we can see the picture of Rosie the Riveter, you know, with her arm like this, rolling up her sleeve, you know, bicep flexed, saying, we can do it. And, and the American government was really masterful in creating this expectation that victory would require 100% participation. That every American would have to work hard. Every American would have to juggle their plans and their dreams. Every American would have to suffer, go without, endure hardship, and some form of sacrifice. And so much so, that generation was transformed by this expectation such that many writers look at it and say, that was the greatest generation America has ever produced. What would it take for this generation to be called the greatest Christian generation the world has ever seen? I think, among other things, it would most assuredly take a right expectation for what this life is supposed to be like for every follower of Christ. An expectation that we are not trying to recreate or create paradise on earth, but that we are in the middle of an epic war with a dangerous but defeated foe, and we need to start living and ordering our lives that way. Second point, know the enemy. Well, I suppose the first thing we should know about the enemy is his relative strength and power. How powerful is Satan? First thing I want you to see is that he is most assuredly not God's equal. We are not some kind of in some cosmic yin-yang duality where God and Satan are equal chess players and God just happens to get lucky and get checkmate first. Go back, go back there in chapter 12 to verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. Notice it is not God, the Father, Son, or the Spirit that is leading the charge to throw Satan out of heaven. It's the archangel Michael. Michael is the one that leads the forces of the angelic host to throw Satan down. So as we try to think about Satan's relative power, he's not even as powerful as Michael, let alone God. We've got to get that clear because, you know, we live in a Star Wars world where many of us have seen the first ones, the second ones, and, and we think of, you know, light and dark and the force, and it's really easy for us to make the mistake of thinking that they're equal sides, the opposite side of a coin, and, and they're clearly not. But he's very powerful nonetheless. It says in verse 11, then I, yeah, wrong page, wrong chapter. Verse 11, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. He has been defeated by God, but the enemy still has power to strike at followers of God such that they would become casualties in this conflict. So it's a very real statement. So we see his power. We might ask ourselves, what is his, the second thing we should say is, what is his motivation? 
Anytime you're assessing an enemy, whether, whether, good, whether it's a business competitor, whether it's a military enemy, you want to say, what is their motivation? What are they trying to accomplish? And we might ask ourselves that about Satan. Well, if he's not God's equal, if he's not even equal to the archangel Michael, if he knows that he's already lost at the cross, is he just delusional? Many, many people today, they look, at, they look at, you know, powerful forces of evil and they qualify it psychologically. You know, Hitler comes up in your Western Civ class and someone says, oh, he's just crazy. You know, you're watching the news program and they start talking about Paul Pot and they say, oh, that person was just insane. And I think we would do much better to qualify these morally rather than psychologically. And refer to them as forces of evil rather than for forces of insanity or delusion. I mean, many of us can remember the first Gulf War, right? First Gulf War back in the early 90s. Remember, April 6th rolls around. Coalition forces stream into Saddam Hussein National Airport. One day, retake the airport, rename it Baghdad International Airport. You know, you're watching, whether it was CNN or Fox News, everyone's got Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf up there on the screen explaining how easy victory was for the coalition forces. You stay on the tube, 15 minutes later, you get to meet the Iraqi Minister of Information, Mohammed al-Sadaf, who says, and I quote, we butchered the forces president at the airport. And you think that's rather interesting. That's not what the last guy said. And then April 7th rolls around and coalition forces roll deep into central Baghdad. They start taking Saddam's palaces. I mean, the victory is just coming quicker and quicker than anyone anticipated. And then that same day, Mohammed al-Sadaf gets on TV and says, there is no presence of American columns in the city at all. We besieged them and we killed most of them. And if you remember with me, over the next few days and weeks, this guy began to enjoy iconoclastic status. Everybody had heard of Mohammed al-Sadaf, who Bill O'Reilly, if you remember, I think, in some ways shamefully renamed Baghdad Bob. Everybody knew the guy. He was a symbol of delusion. He was a symbol of continuing to fight on in, in some kind of warped sense of reality. And so we may ask ourselves the question, is Satan like that? I think some Christians, we err in living as if Satan is like that. We think he's already lost. God's more powerful than him anyway. Whatever, he's going to lose anyway. I don't have anything to worry about. And I think this section of Scripture would counsel us otherwise. Look at verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He has lost three times. Three times. He failed to devour the child, Jesus Christ. He failed in his coup in heaven and got thrown out. He failed to overwhelm the woman by, by the flood of destruction he spewed from his mouth. And instead of giving up, instead of throwing the towel, he gets enraged and furious. It says earlier on, he came down to make war because he knew that his time was short. Instead of being delusional, the closer Satan gets to his judgment, the angrier and the more vitriolic he becomes and the more determined he is to destroy anything and everything God holds dear. He's lost the war. He, he can't win. But he's going to 
inflict as much bloodshed and win as many small skirmishes as he can before his ultimate destruction. And so it's worth asking ourselves, do we have a category for, as the text calls it, the rage of the enemy? Or the, do we have a category for the fury of the enemy? Do we approach our life in the middle of this epic conflict with the thought that we have a very real person of remarkable power that wants to break up our marriages, that wants to steal our joy, that wants to rob the peace from our homes, and wants to diminish or destroy our faith and our fruitfulness for Christ. And that he has a remarkable assortment of tools ranging from being an angel of light to being a roaring lion. And he will use everything in that arsenal to accomplish that purpose. Because if you are a follower of Christ especially, he hates you. And will do everything he can to ruin you. Psalm 18.4 says, The cords of death entangled me, the torrents of destruction over." me. That flood he is issuing is a flood of destruction that he wants to use against every follower of Christ, every person. So the third thing I mean, we can pause for a moment on is to say, what are the means by which he's going to try to attack? You know, if I, if I, know, if I know how the attack is coming, specifically, maybe I can, I can kind of gird myself up for it. And honestly, here, we could spend five sermons, if not more, and, and you're going to need to do some work on your own. But I will offer one suggestion found in a, in a good book by New Testament scholar Clinton Arnold called Three Crucial Questions to Spiritual Warfare. He looks at the first chapter in the book of Ephesians and, and he isolates seven things in the first chapter of Ephesians which are clearly called the will of God or which we can clearly infer are the will of God because it's God doing it. And he says because Satan is the enemy of God and his people, it's not altogether unrealistic for us to imagine that if it's God's will for it to happen, it's Satan's will to prevent it from happening. And so as I kind of go through these seven, I just want you to step back and ask yourself, have any of them happened to me? Are they happening to me now? What am I going to do to protect myself from the time when Satan tries to prevent them from happening? So these are seven things that are God's will. One, getting rid of sinful thoughts and practices and acquiring virtue. Two, tangibly demonstrating love according to the ultimate pattern laid down by Christ who willingly sacrificed his own life for others. Three, coming alongside others and helping them grow in the Christian life. Four, using one's own giftedness to give to others in the Christian community. Five, creating and maintaining unity in the Christian community. Six, developing healthier family relationships. And seven, Spreading the good news of Christ to others. Seven things clearly laid out is the will of God. And so it would be fair to say that's probably where an attack is going to come to prevent us from doing any one of those seven things. Maybe that's a good place to start as we try to anticipate where the attack is going to come from. Now, am I encouraging you to look and see Satan behind every bush? behind every time the car stalls out, behind every time you stub your toe, behind every time you balance a check? No, certainly not. C.S. Lewis on this point is right when he says, Satan is really happy when we think of him too much or too little. 
Either way, we play in his, his idea. If we don't think about him all, he wins. If we think about him all the time, he wins. However, thinking about our culture here on the South Shore, I would have to say that we probably err on the side of that spectrum of not thinking about him enough. So I'll give a point to illustrate how we can see this attack and this dichotomy come. Imagine a man who is 18, 19 years old. He did not grow up in in a Christian home. Through a campus ministry in college, he surrenders his life to Christ. Begins reading the Bible, begins praying, begins trying to become where the man God wants him to be. Graduates from college, joins a local church, spends the next eight, nine, ten years in his life serving, growing in that community. Then one day he gets a knock at the door. Gets the knock at the door, and it's two people who identify themselves as you know, followers of Jesus Christ, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And they say, we'd like to just you know, kind of have some fellowship with you and talk with you. And they use a lot of the same language he hears used at church. And so he doesn't know a lot about them, but he feels a little bit, you know, a measure of comfort. And he thinks maybe they're just part of a different denomination or something. So he welcomes them in his home. They begin having tea together. And they begin sharing a gospel very different from the gospel he heard ten years ago and ever since. A different Jesus than he has ever heard. And, and he's kind of put off by that a little bit, but, but then they begin to talk about some discrepancies and some errors in his Bible and in the gospel he's heard, and he has no answers for their criticisms, no answers for, for their arguments. And he, they leave, and he is shaken because he wonders if he has believed a lie and if he has placed his trust in a foundation not strong enough to support it. And he goes and he, and, he, and, he, and he talks to the people involved in his small group and, and he's a little embarrassed, but he brings up, he says, yeah, I talked to these, these two guys that were, said they were Jehovah's Witnesses and, and they had some things that I didn't really know what to do with and I, I didn't know how to believe. And, and, and they just kind of laugh and say, oh yeah, I don't believe anything they think. They don't know what they're talking about. You know, if they come to your door, don't even answer. They're crazy. And he's too embarrassed to bring it up again. And the Jehovah's Witnesses come by a second time and even a third time. And he doesn't believe everything they say, but fairly quickly, the Bible that was on his end table begins to collect a remarkable amount of dust. And over the course of the weeks and months, his presence in church becomes a thing of faded memory. And you fast forward ten years, and you find that he's a member in a church, but no one knows who he is. They just see his name on the page. Who's responsible for that? Who would we blame for that That occurrence? Is it the man himself? Is it his fault that he did not take advantage of the many resources we have in print and on the web that talk and give credible reasons to have faith and confidence in the Word of God and respond to those that would seek to lead us astray? Is, is, is he to blame? Is it his church? Is, is it that small group that he brought up his concerns to who failed to take his concerns seriously and support him and encourage him and pray for him, even reach out to him when he stopped coming? Is it the spirit being who masquerades as an angel of light desiring to lead people astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ? Isn't it all three? Aren't all three equally to blame? Isn't each one equally true? C.S. Lewis, again, comically portrays this in screw tape letters where, you know, you see a man who is beginning to contemplate eternity. He comes to really start to wrestle with the thought that maybe he is a sinner. 
that there is a God that he has offended and that he needs to come to know that God and, and repent of his sins and turn to that God. And, and, and the demon trying to prevent this from happening sees the man wrestling with these weighty thoughts and the best attack he can come up with on the fly is to make him really hungry. And the next thing you see, the guy goes and he gets a sandwich, perhaps a Prevetti's steak tip sub, which robs him of the momentary thoughts he's having about eternity. How should we think about the enemy? How much attention should we give him? I think we should think about the enemy like a good quarterback thinks about the linebackers and the um, defensive backs. You know, if a good quarterback, if a quarterback, he takes the snap and he drops back and he doesn't look at the enemy at all, he doesn't look at the linebackers at all or the defensive backs at all, he's probably about to get sacked. We've seen it happen. If he steps back and he only looks at the linebacker, he's going to get sacked again because he's never going to see where to throw the ball. A good quarterback takes the snap. He's following his receivers out as they perform their patterns. He's got his eyes on all three of them, but he's got half an eye on the cornerback over there. And, and, and he's got another half an eye on the linebacker over there. So when they blitz and they start coming toward him, he knows he can roll out, turn, fire the pass, because he knows exactly where his receiver is going to be. If we are to be like Paul who says, we are not unaware of the enemy's schemes, it seems to me we should think of the enemy like a good quarterback thinks of the linebackers and the defensive backs. We need to know ourselves. What does this passage tell us about ourselves? Do we see, what characteristics do we see developed thematically here? Verse 11 says that the people of God have conquered the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony because they, they would rather die than renounce their king. Verse 17 calls believers those who keep his commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. We don't live in a country where at this moment Christians are being shot for carrying a Bible. But we live in a culture where many of us face a remarkable degree of relational persecution. Perhaps not altogether unlike what Peter experiences when the barmaid comes up to him and says, Hey, aren't you one of Jesus' guys? And he says, No, no, that's not me. Some of us, perhaps like me, you can remember the moment like I did when you know, my mother as a teenager was like, Hey, let's go to the mall and go shopping. And I was like, How about you just go for me? Or give me some money, let me go with my friends. I didn't want to get seen in public with my mom. I want to go to the movies with my mom. Okay, I'm a bad person. That's a given, all right? But really. And yet for us, we face, some of us, that, that relational pressure where we don't want to say, I'm going to church on Sunday morning. Where we don't want to say, oh, tonight I'm going to a small group. Where we don't want to talk about that purity ring. We put on it. We still wear it, but if people ask us about it, we just say, oh yeah, it's something I have because we're embarrassed to say that we want to live a life of purity until we're married. If we shrink back in the face of relational pressure, how would we ever stand if we faced physical persecution? We will never be what these faithful men and women are. And we should, not that we aspire to it, but we should aspire to have the confidence and the faithfulness to Christ that we would endure it for His glory, that we would not shrink back if we went through it. 
text tells us we have overcome by the blood of the Lamb. You know, when Satan is thrown down from heaven, he no longer has the ability to accuse a Christian in God's presence. He loses that. But that does not mean he can stop accusing you, brother and sister. And so maybe this morning you came in here hearing those barbed attacks. You're not good enough. You are worthless. You think God would save you? Look at you. He died to save you and you fell into that sin again. If something like that happens, I would encourage you to to do what Jesus does and to respond with Scripture and say, Satan, you know, you're right. Actually, I'm worse than you're telling me I am. But you know what? Though I was dead in my sins, now I am alive with Christ. Though I was in slavery, now I have been set free. Though I was red and in, in stained like crimson, now I am white like wool, white as snow. I am a new creation. I call God Daddy and I know where I'm going and there is neither trouble nor hardship nor persecution nor sword, neither anything in heaven or hell or all of creation that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Tell him that. First John 1 John 1.8.9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so maybe some of you are in this room this morning and you're having that you know, red pill, blue pill moment that Neo has where you've heard enough and now you've said, my goodness, I guess I really need to make a commitment. Do I walk away or do I seal the deal? And I guess the only thing I would say this morning is to encourage you with the confidence that there is nothing you have done, that there is no place you have been, there there is nothing that you have thought, said, that the blood of Christ is not powerful enough to wash away. This is the big thing that the world... And I understand why sometimes they don't understand about Christianity. It's not that we're better than anyone else. We are just as bad. We have not overcome by our own holiness. We have not overcome by serving on eight church committees. We have not overcome because we're better than anyone else. We have overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And if that's not where we make our stand, we will never in fact stand. So there is nothing the blood of the Lamb is not powerful enough to wash away. You notice in that text he says... God is faithful and just. It's a puzzling concept. Can't mean to you and me. God doesn't owe us anything. God forgiving us can't be because he's being just to us. You know what he's just to? God is just to the spilt blood of Jesus Christ, his son. God will always honor the poured out blood of his son no matter where you've been or who you are if you lay hold of it. So we find ourselves living in the midst of this epic conflict with a dangerous and defeated foe, and I urge you, let us begin living that way. The enemy is fearsome. His fury terrifies. His arrogance is loathsome. His vile mouth vilifies. The Son of God in heaven, the angels He installed, the offspring of the woman, the people God has called. Our foe has been defeated. He knows his time is short and far from being seated in honor in God's own court. 
His certain doom is looming like clouds before a squall, and blind rage marks his booming attack upon us all. He loves to foster warfare or peace with great deceit. He aims to fill his death lair with rebels. He repeats his filthy accusations to make us doubt the Lord. He doles out tribulations of famines, plagues, and sword. The father of all murder, his passion is the lie. In sin a tireless worker, a tempter he will try. To dupe us with seduction or persecute us to death, to challenge God's election, deny the Spirit's breath. But we have overcome him by the blood of God's own Lamb. We silence accusations on Christ's death. We take our stand. The kingdom is advancing by this gospel we proclaim. The truth to which we testify that frees from fear and shame. We will not hide from danger, death, and other earthly loss. For we are learning daily death, the pathway of the cross. The devil fights with fury with a cruel and bruising rod, but we extol the triumph of the kingdom of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we lift up your name and exalt you, for indeed your kingdom reigns forever and ever. Pray that you would help transform us into the kind of people that would live the life you have called us to and that would glorify you in all things. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please pick up the red hymnal in front of you and turn to hymn number 526. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand.
Come by nothing less than the blood of Christ, and that victory you will achieve. Amen.